Friends, our first reading this morning comes from the wonderful book of Romans, reading chapter 5, verses 1 through to 5. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace into which you now stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings, because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not disappoint us, because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit, whom he has given us. This is the word of the Lord. And if you could turn with me again to the wonderful book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 6. So I'm going to be reading from Matthew 6 and verses 5 to verse 8. So Matthew chapter 6 and starting at verse 5. Let's hear from God's word. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by men. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Friends, we're going to stop there and we're going to pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of prayer. Our Father, we thank you that when we speak to you, you hear and you answer. We thank you that we've been able to take a closer look at this wonderful truth over the last five weeks. And we pray again that you would speak to us today by your wonderful words so that we might know you better walk with your, you closer and show you better. And Father, we pray this in Jesus' precious name and for his glory. Amen. And so, friends, we come to the final week in our series on the Lord's Prayer. A prayer, as we were reminded from our reading just then, was given in the, in the context of how not to talk to God. And when you pray, says Jesus, verse 5, do not... Do not what? Well, in a nutshell, do not try to impress others, verse 5, or impress God, verse 7. How might we avoid these two big tendencies in our prayer life? Well, Jesus doesn't leave us guessing, does he? First, to avoid the urge to impress those around you, well, don't fight it. Remove yourself from those around you. But when you pray, says Jesus, go into your room, close the door and pray to your Father who is unseen. So priority number one is one-on-one. -on -one. But having done that, how do I speak to God in his language rather than my own? To put it how, how Jesus puts it, how do I not babble on, dishing out speeches that seek to, to bend God toward me, my glory, my will, 
my agenda rather than the other way around. Well, says Jesus, once in the quiet place, this is how you pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Our friends, no babble there, is there? No seeking to impress God, bend his will towards yours, but the very opposite. A simple, short, but profound prayer that shifts us toward the one who made me, you, and everything. Who is this one? Not some great mysterious other, but our Father. It's our Father who rules the heavens and every square inch under it. And because that is so, we are to seek for his name to be hallowed and glorified up and over my name, every other name, particularly our own. His name up and over our own, as well as his program up and over our own. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Having prioritised our Father's glory and will in heart and mind, you are now ready to come to him concerning your needs, says Jesus. And of these there are three. We are to pray for physical provision, daily bread, for relational pardon, forgiveness for sins. And finally, we are to pray for spiritual protection. Verse 13, have another look at it. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Friends, this final petition is the one that we'll be looking at a bit closer today. But before we dig into it and take a closer look at it, don't miss the connection that this verse has with the one before. And that connection, of course, is sin, isn't it? The difference is verse 12 is looking back. Forgive me, Lord, for it. While verse 13 is looking forward. Protect me, Lord, from it. To put it another way, verse 12 is seeking God's power to save from past sinful actions while verse 13 is seeking God's power to resist future sinful actions. And in this we see, don't we, Jesus' intention for us as we live in this world under our Heavenly Father is not simply to be forgiven people, but changed people. More and more like the new man, the new woman he made us to be, and less and less like the old person controlled by the world, the flesh and the devil. But we know, don't we, we know only too well, wanting and doing are two separate things, aren't they? Our keeping ourselves from sin, steering a new course away from the snake in the tree, the sin that so easily entangles is an impossible task with some, without some help from above. But friends, while we know all this is true, 
How exactly does God help us in that process? What is our expectation from him in those crunch moments? Now what aid from above is on offer that we might leave our old sinful life behind? Now it's interesting, I remember in my pre-Christian days, one of my biggest problems, one of my biggest stumbling blocks in believing in a good God was a bad sinful world. If there was a God up there, he shouldn't, sure didn't seem bothered with what was going on down here. Sure didn't seem all that interested in delivering us from evil. And of course, I wasn't the only one in this way of thinking. And I do do a quick Google search and you see one of the main reasons, if not the main reason, people don't believe in God is the problem of evil. Good God, evil world. That simply doesn't work. But here's a follow-up question. What kind of work does one think God should do to sort things out? What sort of involvement do we expect from God to fix the evil that we humans inflict upon the creation and inflict upon one another? If God decided tonight, right, no more evil when the sun comes up, how exactly would he make that happen? Well, friends, I don't know about you, but as far as my little brain can see, the only way God could fix evil tomorrow completely and totally is for him to insert himself into my little brain tomorrow completely and totally. And everybody else's as well. Such that our every thought, word and deed comports and aligns perfectly with his. But if God made a world like that tomorrow, who are we in it? Who are we if every choice we ever make can only ever be one choice, the right one? Who are we in that scenario if not a bunch of mindless drones as God moves us this way and that from his command post above? So yeah, sure, God can make a perfect world tomorrow with creatures who never trip up to run it. But clearly God doesn't believe that that is a world worth making. For to make that happen, he would have to take something away, wouldn't he? Actually, more than just one thing away. He would have to take away our ability for genuine relationship, genuine love. Indeed, any genuine reaction or emotion and all the other amazing complexities that make us the responsible, the response-able people, creatures that he made us to be. Do we really want that ability gone? Well, neither does God. So knowing he is not going to make us into a bunch of holy drones, 
to fix the problem of evil. Knowing he is not going to micromanage every thought, word and deed. Knowing this, back to our question. What sort of help can we expect from him when we pray verse 13? Well, let's now dig into this petition and drill down a bit more into it. And as we do, we immediately see, don't we, there are two parts to it, isn't there? The first, of course, being, and lead us not into temptation. Now, friends, on the surface, that sounds pretty straightforward, doesn't it? Don't, don't live our lives, but, but be our guide. Just please don't guide us in a direction that's harmful, down temptation's path. But friends, as I say that out loud, isn't that a given? Doesn't it go without saying that a good God, indeed our lovingly heavenly Father, would never do that? How exactly are we to understand this plea for God to not lead us into temptation? Particularly in the light of what James writes in chapter 1 of his letter. Have a listen to it. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when by his own evil desire he is dragged away and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. Friends, James could not be any clearer, could he? Our falling into temptation is on us and us alone. Each one is tempted when by our own evil desire we are dragged away and enticed. But if that's the case, what exactly are we asking of God here? If he has nothing to do with us falling into sin, what's the point of pleading with God not to lead us into temptation? If God and temptation are as far as the east is from the west. Well, friends, back when I was in Sydney in one of the churches I used to attend, we actually didn't say temptation because this church decided to replace temptation with trial. Trial. And it did that because the word Jesus uses here can be equally translated as trial or test. And that's pretty important to know because while God never tempts us, Trials and tests are a completely different story, aren't they? What was the tree in the garden, if not a test? What was Israel's 40 years in the desert, if not the same? How about God's call for Abraham to sacrifice Isaac? Or the entire book of Job? The truth is, friends, while God tempts no man, he absolutely does put his children's faith to the test. 
He does lead us into the proverbial desert where Satan can jump in and offer us an oasis. Or should I say a mirage? But why? Why would a good God allow his children to experience such spiritual danger? To be led into difficulty, deep struggle, horrendous weakness, where Satan can take his best shot. Well, friends, right before James assures us God never, ever tempts us, he tells us why God leads us to a place where we can be. Have a listen. The testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial, because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. Peter, who knows a little bit about trials and tests, puts it like this. For a little while, you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold may be proved genuine and so result in praise, glory and honour when Jesus Christ is revealed. And so, friends, we see at the heart of trials, big and small, is to test our hearts. Test them to see what truly resides in there. Moses' final speech to Israel before they enter the promised land makes this crystal clear. Have a listen. Remember all the way which the Lord your God has led you in the wilderness these 40 years that he might humble you, testing you to know what is in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 2. And so, friends, we see while God tempts no one, he does put us through trials that opens us up to temptations. And the path we take in those moments reveals who we are truly following. But, friends, if that's the case, if that's true, and it clearly is, why then are we to pray, lead us not into the trial? I mean, shouldn't we pray for the trial? If it is the means by which our faith is proved genuine? Well, there's a little verse in 1 Corinthians that helps us to answer that question. Paul writes this, If you think you are standing firm, be careful, lest you fall. If you think you are standing firm, be careful, lest you fall. Friends, Paul consistently writes the worst place 
for us to be in our own attitude is a sense of perceived strength. And so his constant refrain throughout his letters, when I am weak, then I am strong. Strong because his perceived strength, which is an illusion, cannot only but harm him, trip him up. Brothers and sisters, why don't we pray, bring on the trial? Because that's not a wise prayer. That is not a prayer of humble dependence, but personal independence. And independence is where every trip up, every wrong decision, every sin begins. While dependence, resting on an in-God strength rather than our own, is what sees us through the fire. Now that's the example of Jesus to a T, isn't it? Lord, give me this, this cup to drink. No, take this cup from me, but not my will, but yours, he said. Jesus' instruction to his disciples in that very hour is telling. Watch and pray so you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the body is weak. I will die for you, Lord. Uh, No, you won't, Peter. Before the rooster crows, you are going to deny me three times. The spirit is willing, but the body is weak. True of them and also true of us. And so we pray, not lead us into the temptation, but lead us out of it. That's the prayer. Deliver us from evil. And so the big question, how does God do that? How does he come to our aid in the middle of the trial? When things look dark, getting darker, and Satan is taking his best shot. Well, friends, as much as we would like the word deliver to be literal, basically plucked out of the struggle by the arms of God, or at the very least for him to step in and change things up, remove the dark cloud, clear it away and let the sun come out, Although that is what we would like, that is not how God delivers. But if not that, how then? How does he do it? Well, friends, Paul was asked this very question by the Corinthians, and this is his answer. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. How does God help us when our house is on fire, surrounded by smoke? He helps us by lighting up the way out the path to walk such that the flames don't consume us and Satan doesn't deceive us. And friends, that way out, that pathway is seen by us when we take our eyes off the trial, off the flames and us in it and focus instead up on our Heavenly Father. And James puts it like this, 
Submit yourselves to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Submit yourselves to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. And the one who took that promise on in full is the one who gives us this prayer. Submit yourself to God, resist the devil and he will flee from you, encapsulates Jesus in every single trial, doesn't it? Having just been baptised, out he was led into the desert. And once out there, in great, great weakness, Satan with all the power, all the high ground, took his best shot, shot after shot, didn't he? How did Jesus respond? He stuck to God and his word. He never wavered from the promises in God's word as the enticing alternatives came at him. Jesus submitted himself fully to God. The result was he was delivered. Satan had to flee. Flee only to return when Jesus underwent a second trial that made the first one look like a kindergarten picnic. But as Jesus took the heat of that fiery trial, a fire, a heat that we could never know, he again kept eyes on the one, the only one who can and does deliver. And so the deliverance came. And what a deliverance it was. Resurrection from the dead for him and all who see his perfect submission to God and so put their trust in him. Jesus gives us deliverance with a capital D through never wavering left or right as he got hit with everything the world, the flesh and the devil could throw at him. And so, friends, we have the ultimate deliverance through faith as well as the ultimate example to follow as we get hit with our desert moments. Peter writes, Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his footsteps. Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his footsteps. Friends, the fire will come. Afflictions, trials and trouble come. But so has our deliverance from evil and the evil one. Jesus talked the talk and he walked the talk. And he calls on us now to do the same. To do the same. So don't listen to Satan's candy-coated lies in the trial, but submit yourselves to God, his ways, his word, and you will be delivered. Indeed, the devil will have to flee from you. And one day, the fire he causes is going to be turned on him. And on that day, we will know deliverance in full. 
and forever. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we also forgive those who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom, the power and the glory, forever and ever. Amen.